Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello. Welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have guest Dr. Angel Adams Parham, professor of sociology at Loyola University, New Orleans. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the St. Vincent College-sponsored CLT is coming up on January 9th. Applicants to St. Vincent College can have their CLT fee waived. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. All right, welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Today, we have a very exciting guest from Loyola University in New Orleans, Dr. Angel Adams Parham. Uh, much of her work is in the area of comparative and historical sociology of race, assessing the many ways that the past continues to speak to us uh, in the present, urging us to contemplate who we are, who we have been, and who we aspire to be as a national community. This area of research has inspired her interest in reconnecting sociology to its classical roots so that sociology is understood to be the kind of public philosophy animated by questions such as, what is the public good? She is the author of The American Roots, Racial Pamphlets and the Transformation of Race, which was the co-winner of the Alan Charlotte Memorial Book Award in 2018. So I, I gotta tell you, I was so encouraged uh, when we first reached out to you and asked you to be on the program uh, because I, I had no idea that you'd ever heard of Anchored or even CLT necessarily. Uh, and I, I was shocked. You said that you listen every to every episode, which was such an encouragement. So, so thank you for that. That's, that's wonderful. It's been really fun. But I, I had a chance to listen to one of your podcasts uh, when you went on the Daily Stoic, and it was a fascinating podcast. And I was really interested in this, this little tidbit you shared about kind of your, your journey into the world of classical ed. You talked about being a high school maybe sophomore or junior, reading the Canterbury Tales. What was it about the Canterbury Tales? I think we've all experienced reading that. What was it that, that just kind of sparked your imagination? Well, you know, it was one of those things that was just truly dramatic. So I'm sitting, um, I believe this was my junior year, maybe junior or senior year of, of, of high school. And my teacher walked in and he was just a phenomenal, phenomenal English teacher. So all of us are sitting still at our desk, um, waiting for the teacher to enter. He walks in, he says nothing to us, and he just starts reciting. One that April with his Shurasota, the drought of March hath parasit to the rota. And I was just transfixed. You know, I said, what is that? <laughs> That's amazing. And he, like all these years later, more than 30 years later, I remember that moment and those words. And that was the opening to our study of the Canterbury Tales. And that captured me so powerfully. I mean, but he did it with, you know, just the, with premeditated drama, right? So, you know, he didn't just kind of start out, take the role and mm. do that. He kind of 
as if he were coming onto a stage from out in the corridor into the classroom. And then we spent the, you know, the rest of the time studying it. So Dr. Perham, there's so much we could, we could talk to you about. You wear a bunch of different hats, but you're also a homeschool mom due to COVID. There's been such a huge influx of parents into the homeschooling world. What would your, be, your advice be as, as kind of a veteran now? You've been doing this for a while. What is your advice to new homeschooling parents? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I have to say I've looked at, at what's unfolded over the last um, several months with a, you know, kind of, of mingled awe and horror. Um, you know, it's one of these things where I have been incredibly blessed to homeschool my daughters and I'm just so grateful to be able to do it. But I also know that so many parents, I, I can't really fathom what this is like for parents who this was not on their radar screen at all, at all. You know, it took us years to put systems into place to be able to work and homeschool, you know, because both my husband and I work. And much as I love homeschooling, and I, this is something I could talk about forever. I, I love talking to potential homeschool parents, um, yeah. but I know it's got to be crazy. So first thing I would say, if they are still, if the parents are still working and, and they have to work, um, whether it's inside or outside of the home, to cultivate um, a good and trusted list of caregivers who can work with them and their children, which is what we have done over the years. So we started when my oldest was four years old and she is now 14. Um, so we're at the beginning of our 11th year. And so that's what we have always done. Um, and we, you know, turn to church networks. Um, mainly we've got, um, a Baptist seminary here that has also been a good source of caregivers. Uh, sometimes other parents in the homeschool community are able to take kids in and, you know, give them a little something to kind of watch the kids. Um, so that's the, that's the, the first thing that I would say. The second thing for those who are completely new to it, um, and I'm sure there are probably people listening who, you know, maybe they're still trying to stick it out with you know, online, public, or private schooling, but maybe thinking about homeschooling, is that I started out with, you know, kind of a school in a box with sunlight. So they're wonderful, because they will send you everything. They've got these great packages, the literature, the history, the science, the workbooks, they've got a whole plan for either doing four or five days of schooling a week. And you literally just look down every day and see what you need to cover. So they will hold your hand and take you through the whole thing. And that's what I started out with. And then um, after a while, I moved to classical conversations, which is you need a little more of your own independence there because you'll have to be choosing more of your own books. And so that can be good for those who maybe don't want everything packaged for them, who want to have, you know, a little more flexibility. Um, but the strength of classical conversations is that you've got that one day a week when the kids are in community. And so it's kind of this automatic thing set up for you. And then the other four days a week, you're on your own. And if you move across the country, there is a classical conversations just about anywhere you go. You know, so um, my girls, you know, even if we did have to pick up and move, which I don't think we will, but if we had to pick up and move, they would be right on, on in line with whatever is going on at the other classical conversations because they're all coordinated in what they're studying. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like I said, I could talk about this forever, you know, various approaches, resources, 
Um, but for those who might be thinking about doing it, I'd encourage you to really think about it seriously. It is it is doable even if you are working. So you, even even pre-COVID, would you say that you love homeschooling? Do you love being a homeschool mom? I would say I absolutely love being a homeschool mom pre-COVID. Yes. Um, I there, There's really nothing that can replace being able to sit down with my daughters every day and read and talk and think. So as you said, you know, I'm also a college professor and I'm extremely picky about education in general. Um, and so I, I didn't want a situation where I wasn't really satisfied with what they were learning and, you know, that I have a certain way I want them to learn. I'm very heavy on literature and discussion. And, you know, so for instance, just to take a page from today, um, you know, we always open up with a hymn and then went on, we're doing American history right now. We're at the time of the American Revolution. So we were reading about Phyllis Wheatley and kind of her um, poetic support of the revolution and then because we're in 18th century, we've also been reading um, the narrative of Oloda Equiano, who was an enslaved mm. man um, kidnapped from West Africa. And we're just seeing all of his, you know, adventures on his way to being free and establishing himself. Um, you know, so to be able to sit down and to read that and to talk about it, you know, the, there's very few uh, schools that I can think of that that's what we would be doing. And, you know, then they also just get a fair amount of independence. Um, so the way, um, the way our homeschool is set up with classical conversations starting in seventh grade, the, the kids really, it's much more, they have to figure out from week to week, which days they're going to do what work. And I check in, of course, you know, I do check in every day. But there's just a lot more autonomy that they see I have all of these things that need to get done in a week. So how am I going to apportion every day to make sure I get them done? Start that in seventh grade. Um, when I see my college students struggling with time management is huge. Uh, the other thing is writing. And so a lot of this, again, comes back to my work as a college professor where I see what has not happened K-12. Um, and that I'm determined that that not happened with my daughters. Writing. They have had superb writing, um, particularly since they were nine years old. So um, they use the Institute for Excellence in Writing curriculum um, starting when they're nine years old. And then they go to the Lost Tools of Writing in high school. Two excellent writing programs I can attest as a college professor I, I've just been so happy to see from age nine, you know, just learning how to read a source text, how to outline it, and how to read, su summarize it without plagiarizing, you know, really learning how do you make a thesis with an argument. I don't know of a lot of public schools that are going to do yeah. what they've been able to do. And I, I love uh, in IEW as well. We do that as, as homeschool parents. Uh, we've been super, super impressed with the work that they're doing. Um, I want to totally kind of switch topics and talk to you about kind of the craziness going on at Brown University. Um, you, you seem like the perfect person to pick your brain about this. Uh, as a black woman, as a Yale graduate, uh, as someone who loves the classics and Marcus Aurelius, 
Um, so the situation here, and we, we talked about this last week in our podcast with Alessandro Bacci, who wrote for the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal. Students want to cancel, take down a statue uh, of Marcus Aurelius. Um, what would you say to these students uh, as a scholar, as a classicist? Um, how would you weigh in on this discussion? Yeah, so I, I've looked at, at some of these debates with a great deal of interest. And I think it's the kind of thing that has to be handled one monument or one building at a time, depending on, on what the issues are. Um, in this particular case, the, the approach that I would want to take would be one of what I call kind of putting the past into conversation with the present. So there may be some cases where statues just really have to come down because they were literally put up in the service of you know, some kind of view of domination, like that was literally the purpose that they were put up. If that's the case, yes, then I think you have a stronger case for bringing it down. In this particular case with Marcus Aurelius, I, I don't think that that was the initial intention. And I, I also don't think that just removing it is the best approach. I would tend to think in terms of um, now, I did, I did read what the, um, the Brown students said, so I also do think it's important to look at what people are saying, to take it seriously. So I did read their statement as to why they're, they're arguing for this. I do take their point and think they're right that we do need to have more representation of Native Americans, of African Americans, and so on. It is the case that most, in, the, in most cases, when you get statues or monuments, Across our particular country, many of them have been European men. This is true. Um, so I do take their point about needing more voices. And so what I would tend to think of is not taking Aurelius down, but rather putting him into conversation with something else. Um, so, for example, another um, Stoic philosopher, Epictetus, who came before Aurelius, um, who was formerly enslaved, um, and then who, you know, rose to philosophic heights, he has been an inspiration for other oppressed peoples. For instance, Toussaint Louverture um, in the former colony of Saint-Domingue, current-day Haiti, was known to have read Epictetus. You know, and, you know, no one would say that Toussaint Louverture, you know, is a champion of, you know, white supremacy, Right. Um, he drew on European philosophers as well, as so did many other Black intellectuals. So, you know, I think that there's a way to think in think beyond just tearing down, but to look at, you know, what within what context was Aurelius working, to actually look at his works, to maybe look at um, some of those who came before him, like Epictetus, and I think Epictetus is a really good one because he was formerly enslaved and has inspired others who had been enslaved. And Louverture led the Haitian Revolution um, and was a brilliant, you know, um, military man. That is how I tend to think about it: is how can we put different interlocutors into conversation with each other? A big emphasis here uh, within, the, that I think we probably both, you know, enjoy in the classical renewal movement is the uh, the focus on restful learning. And I spent my whole career in the public school arena, a couple of years at a Catholic school, but it wasn't really until I got into kind of the classical arena that the connection between rest and even leisure. 
and yeah. learning. And so we, we always love to talk to our guests, especially our very busy guests where you're wearing multiple hats and a homeschool mom and a college professor and having to do podcasts like Anchored Here. What, what, is, what is your own kind of reading habits? What, what are your own reading habits like? What are you reading now? What do you enjoy? What do you read just for fun? Good question. Um, I, I read all sorts of literature for fun. <laughs> um, so earlier this year, I was reading um, Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. And she is just one where I'm just captured from the minute I start reading her. Uh, I guess the way I judge writers is they draw me in so deeply that I don't even realize I'm reading. You know, like I'm just there with them. And so she is definitely one that I love and that I turn to. Uh, another one that I turn to is Emily Dickinson. So I have an interesting history with Emily Dickinson. I almost feel like she's an old friend. She got me through high school and my teenage years. So I still have the volume that I um, carried around with me in high school that is, you know, falling apart at the binding. I was a very introverted, kind of moody young woman, you know, often alone with my books. I found someone else who seemed to be very much often alone, you know, verging on depressed, but really brilliant. Just, I mean, like she just, it's like having a scalpel of language. She could just express these intense emotions, whether the ups or the downs, in such brilliant ways. And, you know, I would read her as a teenager and I would just cling to that. Um, you know, I, I definitely commend her work to, to anyone else who is so oriented. And, and what about, is there maybe one book that in your own life, in your formative years, maybe it was Canterbury Tales. We, we won't make you do it one more time. We've got the audio, audio clips. Um, is there one work that maybe you come back to that you've, you've reread? For, for me, it's been Chesterton's Orthodoxy. I'm probably reading it for the fifth or sixth time right now. I, it's always new. It's always fresh. Um, what, what has that been for you? That's honestly quite difficult. Um, I don't know that I come back to over and over again. I, I think it, it would really have to be Emily Dickinson's complete poems. You know, I can't think of another book that has been with me throughout my life to such a degree. And that has been with me through thick and thin and up and down. And that keeps coming back. So I would have to say that, you know, not that I don't, there aren't other books that I absolutely love as well, but there's, there's a variety in poetry, you know, whereas if it's just one novel or one nonfiction book, it's, it's just that. Whereas with poetry, you know, there, there are so many aspects that you can get into or so many different poems that can express different moods. And so it would be Emily Dickinson's complete works. Dr. Perham, thanks so much for your time today. This has been a delight. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.